This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Fungipedia is a fun read, um, and it, it kind of goes through, it weaves together in a very mycelial way um, all these different components of mycology um, and of the interactions between fungi and humans. Um, and it, it became apparent in reading this book that, that you, Lawrence, have a, a very deep connection with the fungi. Um, and, you know, for many of us, you know, we feel this disconnection with nature. You know, we have this, this huge separation between um, ourselves and, and what we consider the natural world. And fungi are um, an incredible door opener to the natural world and to our place within our ecosystem. Um, and I'm curious about, you know, Lawrence, when, um, when you first began getting into mycology, you know, where did this interest, what sparked this interest and um, how did you get into this stuff? Well, uh, mycology, which is a study of fungi, and you could call it fungi, but uh, every time you do, uh, a joke comes up that I've heard 74,000 times, uh, so I prefer fungi. Um, you know, some people arrive at the interest uh, via magic mushrooms. Some people, through uh, a culinary interest in mushrooms. Some people are inspired by a university professor uh, to study mycology. My interest was somewhat different. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time in my younger years documenting ethnographic lore in the Arctic, collecting stories from native people, superstitions, customs, etc. Uh, and every once in a while, uh, there would be a superstition or story about fungi. For instance, the Inuit in the central Canadian Arctic believe that mushrooms are the anak, which is shit, of shooting stars. The shooting star in the late summer or fall goes across the nighttime sky, leaving a trail of detritus behind it, which uh, from the point of view of the Inuit might be the defecating, defecation. And the next morning, there are mushrooms on the tundra. Uh, and as a, one uh, Inuit elder told me when I asked him if uh, he ever ate mushrooms, he said, now, do you think I would ever call up a friend and say, hey, come on over for dinner. We're, we're uh, eating the shit of shooting stars. <laughs> uh, so it would be through uh, stories like that and certain other cultures would take a bracket fungus, ignite it, and I was hoping I could do that again tonight, <laughs> using it as a fire starter and also an insect smudge. Uh, but there is a, a no smoking, so to speak, uh, rule here, so I can't. 
We uh, can all just imagine that there's a... So imagine, yes. yes. And uh, it is a particular polypore fungus that uh, is absolutely superb as an insect smudge. You ignite it, it's a lot healthier than DEET. Uh, well, of course, anything is, even the mosquitoes themselves. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, this is you know, such a fascinating topic and all of us are here because we're interested in this connection between, you know, humans and, and the fungal realm. Um, and, you know, why is that important? What inspired this book and, and why do you want to put this out there? Why, why should we care about ethnomycology? Why should we care about, um, you know, the historical uses of fungi? Well, we're living at a period in human history where nature is in the process of giving up the proverbial ghost. And I feel obliged to do whatever I can to prevent that from happening. And since one of my primary interests is fungi, and it's not just fungi, but what are they doing in the world? How are they helping the world, the natural world? Um, I think the looking at the book from uh, a strongly ecological perspective, I think what inspired me was to somehow offer my enthusiasm and knowledge to readers who could take advantage of that enthusiasm and knowledge and go out and feel that, oh, look at that mushroom, look at that fungus. What a blessed sight. And think of this within the context of the world in which it's growing and think, by God, if any bloody CEO decides to turn this into a housing complex or a um, startup, uh, I'm going to give him both metaphoric guns. <laughs> Well, I think that's one of the things I really appreciated in the book is it's it's not just about, you know, how can we exploit mushrooms? How can we use them? How can we, um, you know, use them for our own personal gain? Um, and it doesn't come from this anthropocentric position, but it comes from more of a biocentric or mycocentric perspective where you're thinking about, you know, what do the mushrooms want in this situation? What are, you know, what's, um, what's going to benefit them and what's going to benefit the entire ecosystem, right? Um, and so the book weaves in these little pieces. Um, you know, I mean, I can say in my experience, I, I lead mushroom hunts and I, I take people out um, who come from around the Bay Area and they're lovely people, but they come with this mindset of like, okay, what can I extract here? What can I take? Um, I'm just looking for the edible ones. I don't really care about the ecology and they get bored when I try to tell them the difference between mycorrhizal and saprotrophic, you know, things like this that I feel like are really important to understand if we're going to interact with these species. Um, and so I'm curious how you grapple with this, Lawrence, and um, what your thoughts are. Well, I mean, to me, the word use is a equivalent of a four-letter word, although it's a three-letter word. I'm constantly hearing phrases like, we need to save the rainforest because think of all the cures for human diseases that might be there. Essentially, that translates, we need to save the rainforest so we can cut it down and use it. Uh, with respect to fungi, my feeling, and there's a current belief now, fungi will save the world. Uh, and the subtext of that is they'll save the world because, you know, think of all the myriad ways we can use them. 
The way they'll save the world is by being left alone and doing what they've always done since time immemorial, as uh, Maya said. Uh, some of them, do you all know what the word mycorrhizal means? No, you don't. Okay. Um, a mycorrhizal relationship is a relationship between the mite. Do you know what the mycelium is? Yes. I'm just curious, people, if you could raise your hand and uh, if you know what the word mycelium means, just, just out of curiosity. Well, most of you, for... some of you don't, though. Okay. The mycelium is the, uh, we tend to be, uh, as I mentioned to Maya, uh, subterraneanly challenged. <laughs> we don't know what's going on beneath us. Uh, the mycelium typically is going on beneath, it, beneath us. It's the vegetative part of any fungus, the workhorse. It creates the mushroom, but it also connects, if it's mycorrhizal, mycofungal, rhizal root, if it connects with a plant or a tree, and it gives nutrients to that in return for carbs because it's not a plant, doesn't photosynthesize, uh, it needs help, and the plant and tree can give it help. If you remove all the fungi that are mycorrhizal, you would be removing uh, probably much of the plant kingdom, uh, 90, 95%. There would be 90, 95% fewer plants. If you remove all the Homo sapiens from the planet, the planet would be doing just fine. Thank you very much. All right. So um, I want to shift our conversation a little bit towards, you know, not just how do we break out of an anthropocentric mindset, but how do we break out of a Eurocentric mindset, especially um, in the, there's a lot of conversation these days about uh, working with uh, psilocybin-based mushrooms um, as medicine. And um, in your book, uh, you talk about the story of Maria Sabina and Gordon Wasson. Um, and, and I think that, that if you wanted to share that story, I think it's, um, it sheds a lot of light on the way that um, you know, some people come to, the, to these mushrooms with that same kind of exploitative um, attitude and um, you know, take and take and actually you know, destroy the culture that they were coming from. Um, and so, yeah, I want to kind of get into how we can build uh, reciprocal relationships, not just with um, our ecosystems, but um, with um, any indigenous cultures that we may be borrowing from. Well, uh, with respect to psilocybin mushrooms, which are called magic mushrooms, but they're not the only magic mushrooms. There's one that I'm particularly interested in that we can talk about later, the fly agaric or Amanita muscaria. Uh, so uh, what happened was Gordon Wasson, who was a Wall Street, have you all ever, how many of you have heard of Gordon Wasson? Wow, well that's a one quarter. Um, uh, had an interest in uh, magic mushrooms, and went down to uh, Oaxaca and interviewed a Mazatec shamanist named Maria Sabina and wrote up the experience uh, for Life magazine in 1957. Uh, this essentially uh, inspired the beginning of the magic mushroom urge. Before that, there were occasional people who occasionally uh, tried them. More Amanita muscaria 
than psilocybes, I must say. And there's a very good book about this subject I highly recommend called Shroom by Andy Letcher, L-E-T-C-H-E-R. You can find it on Amazon for about 99 cents. It was published about 10 years ago. And it goes a lot into this. Anyway, what happened was Wasson's visit uh, and the write-up thereof uh, caused an incredible stream of people to go down to Mexico uh, and visit the shamanist who previously had simply dealt in a very traditional way with the mushroom, using it for healing and such like among her own people. Suddenly, Keith Richard, Bob Dylan, and a number of rock stars showed up to score magic mushrooms. Then others came, and she wasn't really the sort of person who would say, no, go home, you bugger. Uh, I met her at the very end of her life when she was in her late 80s, and she essentially said, as a result of Wasson and the um, armada of people who came down, she never knew about Life magazine. She never knew he was going to write it up. But because of this, it essentially killed her culture. And I am have, having being with one hat an ethnographer, I'm very aware of the ways in which traditional cultures can be uh, killed by outsiders. I'm, I'm curious also, how many people have heard of Maria Sabina? If it's, I'm curious if it's... Wow. So it's about the same? Interesting. Um, it's just, you know, like, who, who do we give the credit to and who do we um, get, who, who benefited in that relationship, right? Um, and, and I think it's just an important question um, when we're working with these medicines and we don't have, you know, if, if you come from a culture that uses that medicine, you know, that's great and fabulous. If, if you don't, you know, how do we work, it, work with it in a way where uh, we're contributing and we're giving back? It's just, I think, just an important thing to be thinking about. Um, <clears throat> I know that here at CIIS is doing a lot of um, amazing cutting-edge research um, with psychedelic studies. And, um, you know, there's, there's a whole world that's opening up right now around that, a lot that's shifting. Um, so that's very exciting. And, and it's just one of many types of medicinal mushrooms that are also getting a lot of um, uh, light shed up on them uh, lately. And uh, I'm wondering, Lawrence, if you could tell us a little bit about some of the medicinal mushrooms that um, you're really excited about and that you think um, offer some um, interesting uh, stories or interesting um, healing? Well, my own feeling about medicinal mushrooms is that they are completely connected with the cultures that use them. Um, and they might have efficacy uh, if they've been used for millennia and have indeed a religious association and may be given to you by a shaman-like individual. But if you read about it in high times, say, oh, I think I'm going to go cure my hemorrhoids with this uh, and head down to the local health food store, buy it and take it that evening, it doesn't have that association at all. Uh, what I do, though, 
my point of view is somewhat different. Uh, I regard it the big picture. Why are people so obsessed about medicinal mushrooms? I have a theory that one reason is we've removed ourselves dramatically from nature. And this is a way of trying to get back to it. It might have flaws, uh, especially when you read some of the claims. My own feeling is that any medication, be it homeopathic or otherwise, that can cure several different things at once, from epilepsy to hemorrhoids to uh, arrhythmia uh, to angst, uh, might not cure any of them. Um, but I do feel that this is a move on the part of individuals to get back to nature. I also feel it comes from a dissatisfaction with big pharma and its nefarious designs on us. We're realized that the um, capitalistic uh, uh, what we say, assaults by big pharma are not helping our lives a whole lot and we're looking for alternatives and medicinal mushrooms are indeed among those alternatives. So do you have like a, a recommended practice around working with medicinal mushrooms for people who are seeking to use them? As I say in the book, to me, the best fungal medicinal is a walk in the woods looking for <laughs> mushrooms. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Fabulous. Um, well, so a topic that's on many of our minds um, today is forest fire. Um, and I know San Francisco was kind of left out of these uh, big power shutoffs that have been happening all over the Bay Area. Um, I came from Santa Cruz. We had power shutoffs there. Um, and we all know what happened um, last year with the, the massive um, historic wildfires um, that we're having. And, um, you know, I wanted to um, talk to you a little bit about the role of fungi um, in forest fire, the ecological roles. Um, and I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, the ways, you know, various ways that we can um, support fungi in their role with healing from fire. Well, my own feeling would be uh, forest fires are most of them the result of climate change, extremely hot conditions, dry conditions for extended periods of time. What the mycorrhizal fungi are doing, they're connected with the roots of the uh, plant or tree. Uh, that plant or tree is collecting CO2 from the atmosphere and translating it into carbs to help the fungus, the mycelium then creates with that energy, the mushroom. And you could argue that fungi are helping to fight climate change. The destruction of forests this has nothing to do with fires, but it may predate fires. The destruction of forests means more climate change, which means more fires in more forests, which means fewer forests, which 
ultimately may mean fewer fungi, fewer mycorrhizal fungi. Um, my interest is also in what fungi appear after a forest fire, one of which I'm sure you know very well. Um, and um, so, morels. Uh, <laughs> But uh, why do these appear after a forest fire? The, the word now that's used to describe them are phenicoid fungi, P-H-O-E-N-I-C-I-O-D. Phoenix, rise from the dead. And it was created by a mycologist who was documenting what appeared after the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Uh, and there were a lot of mushrooms of a certain sort. Uh, morels, too. Okay, how many of you know the difference between ascomycetes and basidiomycetes? <laughs> One, two, three. All right. Basidiomycetes are mushroom shaped mushrooms, uh, and they drop their spores. Generally, ascomycetes are different, and they launch their spores. Many of them are cup-shaped. Look at a morel in a certain way. It is related to cup-shaped mushrooms. Imagine a whole bunch of cups soldered together and then upright. Uh, it's related to what's called pizizes, which are cup fungi. After a fire, you know, you could argue, yes, well, the nutrients in the soil are, are changed and so on. After a fire, with respect to morels, morels can go from being mycorrhizal to be saprophytes. So all that dead wood down there from the fires, they can prey on. Uh, mycorrhizal, we've talked about it quite a bit. Um, saprophytes, not as much. Uh, being already connected, uh, you could argue that the, the saprophyte, like the morel, gets first dibs on the... But there are a number of other ascomycetes. You don't see a lot of mushroom-shaped mushrooms after a fire. You see cup fungi, and I will, uh, unless there's strong insistence from the audience, I will not mention Latin names. I could, uh, if I see people, you know, hotly breathing and salivating in the hopes of getting a, a, binomi <laughs> a binomial thrown out at them. Uh, but they tend to be less competitive. The mycelium, mycelia fungi are very competitive. Uh, they're competitive with each other, and they tend to be inside a log. Uh, there might be 20 different mycelia, 30 different, and they're all looking for the food that the log is giving, and they're releasing chemicals that say, stay away, this, this grub is mine. Well, after a fire, there are not a lot of mycelia connected with trees. The trees are, are not have no chloroplasts, no photosynthesis, no carbs, so nothing. You don't see mushroom much. But there are a number of ascomycetes, cup fungi, you could say, like the morel too, that uh, love burnt things. 
and are taking advantage of that without the competitive, the basidiomyces, the mushroom-shaped mushrooms, are really, they can outcompete the ascomycetes every day. Uh, you know, I don't know quite, I, I'm trying to think of a sports metaphor, but I can't think of one. Uh, uh, if you look at a log, the ascomycete that grows on the log, it's just a little tiny hole at the, uh, near the surface, whereas inside the log, the bas uh, mycelia of basidiomycetes, which are both uh, mushroom-type mushrooms and uh, wood-inhabiting, you know, crust, etc., they're eating away at the innards. Uh, and if any mycelium from an ascomycete somehow accidentally ventured there, it will be pushed away. Uh, chemicals will be released that say, uh, this ain't your home, mate, so get out of here. Uh, so one of the reasons that after a fire you see what you see is that there's less competition in the ascomycetes which previously might have been outcompeted by the mushroom-shaped mushrooms, now have the realm temporarily to themselves. You follow me? Good. And um, what uh, ecosystem services do those uh, ascomycetes provide? You know, I know that they attract insects that can be food for insects, which would then be food for uh, birds, which would then be pooping out seeds, and they kind of kickstart the ecological succession process? Um, they're not as good kickstarters as some of the larger basidiomycetes. They're, they're small and some quite minute. Uh, they do have associations with the occasional insects that they uh, get to spread their spores. And this is something very interesting about fungi is a lot of them uh, want their spores to be taxied. And some of them have a rank smell, which attracts flying insects, you know, who think, oh gosh, it's a corpse, how wonderful. And they come and light on it and they say, oh, this isn't a corpse after all, and fly off. But they've got the spores on their legs and they fly off and help to distribute those spores. With respect to those cup fungi we're talking about and morels, much, a little bit less so. Uh, the problem really with the morels, um, not the other cup fungi, which are not prime edibles either here or in Europe, is what's called overcollecting. After a fire, manic numbers of individuals go out with giant canisters and collect everything in sight. Uh, I am very strongly against this, uh, and especially in the Pacific Northwest over-collecting. And people say, oh, I'm not damaging the mycelium, I'm just taking the mushroom. But that mycelium is putting an incredible amount of its biomass into the mushroom. So they are indeed damaging the mushroom. Also, by collecting as many as they are, they're limiting genetic diversity in a particular area, uh, which could mean that what grows afterwards could, be, could have fewer defenses against bacteria. Fungi and bacteria, by the way, are, are uh, well-known um, adversaries. Fewer defenses against bacteria or anything else that might come their way, including stressful weather. 
so my feeling, you know, we're talking about the morels, the uh, burnt site morels. I was in the Yukon uh, some years ago documenting uh, a morel. Um, we could call it, it was picking, but it was more like uh, destroying because they were going to sell them to Europe. Um, where in restaurants they're very, very highly regarded. And uh, I was watching these pickers, just everything in sight, and trampling the recently burned forest. And this trampling would have a definite negative effect. Morels they were picking were no longer mycorrhizal. But if any any mycelia are in the ground... Uh, in the area where they're picking it, starting, trying to start up after the fire, they are going to have a harder time because of human tramplings. And some people who go out after morels and other fungi use rakes, and they're raking up the ground, and the entire uh, ecosystem is damaged as a result of that. Truffle hunters with their rakes. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what I always say to people on my mushroom hikes is, you know, with chanterelles in particular, there was a study that was done in Europe where they showed that um, the the removal of the fruiting body, which is the mushroom, um, caused less damage than the trampling of the mycelium. And it was actually people walking around and disturbing the duff um, that was causing uh, the most damage. Um, and that's why I wear these funny shoes <laughs> when I'm mushroom hunting, because I can walk really lightly if I'm going off trail. And if I, you know, knock over some duff, I can kind of put it back, um, especially during a drought, too, um, here in California, where every little tiny bit of moisture is so valuable under the soil. And that duff, those leaves are keeping that uh, moisture in place and and feeding, you know, supporting the root system. And the oak trees, as we all know, are having a, an extremely difficult time right now. Um, so if we're if we're walking around, we've got to be really conscious of how we're treating um, that that subterranean level. We got to get on the subterranean level with the fungi, as you were saying. Um, I wanted to um, also talk about um, you know in, in these fires, um, which are you know burning way hotter, way bigger. Um, way faster than what we would call, you know, how fires used to be, and not what we call a natural fire, which was, you know, a part of the um, a part of the natural e- ecosystem and was actually part of the, you know, what we would might say land management practices of the indigenous people of this land, where they would light fires and it was in a very systematic and well thought out way. Um, these fires now have become so hot that they're. Um, actually um, not quite sterilizing, but destroying a lot of that subterranean level. Uh, Those microbes um, in the soil um, are just dead, and it takes a long time for these forests to regenerate. Um, And as we all know, um, one of the best ways to fight climate change is by replanting and bringing back forests. Um, And so these massive forests um, how do you replant and how do you bring the forest back as quickly as possible? Um, and the nonprofit that I work with, and my colleague Athena is here, um, uh, our, our nonprofit is called Co-Renewal. And what we're exploring right now is um, the use of mycorrhizal fungi, these ones that build the relationships um, with the trees, and basically creating a liquid uh, spore inoculum that we can spray in areas post-fire um, and it's basically like, you know, fire you can think of as like taking antibiotics and like killing a lot of the life. And this would be like a probiotic. 
you know, um, just to speed up the um, the reforestation process um, so that we can get a healthy forest. Again, we can be holding on to water in the soil. Um, we can be slowing down climate change, all of those things. Um, and we, we're just starting to do this work down um, uh, through UC Riverside um, in Southern California. And um, Athena's gonna be going up to um, the area where the campfire is, uh, what was um, this weekend. Um, and we're gonna start um, uh, trying to collaborate and get a project off the ground there. Um, so if you're interested, uh, we are currently fundraising for that project. Um, and if you um, have any uh, more questions about it, you can approach me and you can check out our website, which is co-renewal, co-renewal.org. I had to do my plug. Um, thank you. Um, did you have any other things you wanted to say about fire? Well, uh, no, except for the fact that, uh, fires were, I mean, I, normal for mm -hmm. millennia and everything had evolved with the fires, including the fungi and so on, but now they're no longer normal and they're more intense. Native people would um, I, we, we, I think we tend to um, idealize Native people a bit too much. They would start fires, and then often those fires would get out of control and would burn lots of areas because they had no way of preventing that fact. They didn't perhaps want those fires from going out of control, but they had no way of stopping them. Uh, and my own feeling really is that instead of putting uh, Native people on a romantic pedestal as being the prime ecologist in the universe, and not just on this planet, we should see them as part of a particular species called Homo sapiens, which from its inception uh, is, has been dedicated to destroying the area around it. Certain groups in areas where there's very slim pickings are very aware, like the Inuit in the north and certain Canadian native people in the north are very aware. You can't kill everything in sight. Uh, uh, we have to be, and some of them have uh, cultural beliefs that, uh, you know, those. Uh, kill a few animals and uh, then put one out on the tundra for their ancestors. Well, what does the animal, assuming it could think, which it can, it's dead, think about this. Uh, here is a creature that's been killed for no particular purpose from its point of view. Um, so my feeling, this is, we're talking about porous fires, is that if you look at the sort of history of uh, us humanoids on the planet, um, we aren't simply in a, we, the combination of climate change and overpopulation and technology has made what our ancestors do worse. But they were scarcely uh, clean in their ecological presumptions. I think there's a lot of people um, as a very controversial topic <laughs> um, and there's a lot of differing uh, beliefs around that. Um, so, you know, I'm rather than taking a stance, um, I was wondering um, if we could uh, get into, you know, just this decline that we're seeing in um, 
in our vascular mycorrhizal, which are a certain type of mycorrhizal fungi, the, um, you mentioned in your book that there's, you know, just this general decline of um, mycorrhizal fungi. And I wanted to ask you, what does that mean um, for our forests? What does that mean for um, us as humans? Um, what, are, what are the greater implications of that? And well, why let me is that tell happening? you about that decline. It has a lot to do with the pollutants in the soil. The soil chemistry has undergone a big change. Example, uh, acid rain brings all sorts of nitrogen into the soil that wasn't there before. The plant or tree, which is partnered with the fungus, says, oh, here's all this nitrogen. I don't need to give anything to uh, my partner because I'm getting it for free. and this has been well documented, by the way. So it stops providing uh, carbs uh, to the partner. So it gets a lot less healthy. The mycelium doesn't have any way of producing fruiting bodies. Some can live a long time. If you know what thelephora, the earth face, do you know what that is? Thelephoras. Uh, they've been. Yeah, they've yeah. been known to 70, 175 years old, uh, the mycelium itself. It doesn't have to be producing anything. Uh, other chemicals, pollutants getting into the soil have an analogous effect, which is uh, across, well, across areas I know in the temperate world uh, where there are a lot of, there's a lot of pollution. Even in the Arctic, pollution from China is affecting mycorrhizal species in Alaska. Uh, So, you know, what's happening, we don't think somehow subterraneanly. We don't even think about, uh, well, I'm seeing fewer mushrooms. We do, some people do think, I'm seeing fewer mushrooms now than I did 15 years ago. Um, Certain areas are mm, somewhat free from this. Uh, removed from it, you could say, from the pollutants. I was recently in the Yukon. I was recently in the Yukon, and uh, pretty. This is in the Canadian North. Uh, I've never seen more fungal species. I mean, it mm-hmm. was just everywhere. It was like a science fiction movie. And Yukon has a population of thirty-five thousand. Very little pollution very few highways, automotive exhaust, zilch, uh, no acid rain. I can, you know, a lot of this is somewhat speculative, but I can put put it together and see. This is why I saw so many there and why when I go back outside Boston, I see far fewer. Well, it's interesting because we also, you know, see a lot of fungi that prefer polluted environments. Um, uh, you know, there and there are different fungi that can grow on various toxins. Um, and so, you know, they, they are also negatively impacted. It, it depends on the species, I suppose. And we are having a absolutely tragic loss of uh, diversity of fungal um, species at this time. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious if you have thoughts about... Um, you know, where this is going and where, where you think we're going to be in 100 years in terms of um, fungal diversity on the planet and um, the health of, of the mycoverse. Well, unfortunately, you know, as you know, my, my answers to your questions have gotten into a realm of existential pessimism. Uh, and, 
and it's partly me and partly the world itself. But I see, as I see with uh, the health of the planet itself, I see little um, pockets of sanity, um, oases of intelligence passing on knowledge. So I see certain areas uh, that will remain hopefully unpolluted, uh, you know, with the surprising range of species as in days of yore, and they may well be um, uh, passing on uh, them. I mean, one could argue back in the time of dinosaurs, the worst thing that could possibly happen would asteroid an asteroid came. Well, the planet recovered, and uh, you know there was uh, mammalians came, etc. And, and by the way, I'm talking about this. I, as in the book, like to look at the big picture. I don't want to see fungi just by themselves seeing them without a connection with the world around them. And I truly believe, and I may slightly misquote it, a, a, a quote by one of my heroes, John Muir, uh, who said, when you look at nature, you'll see that everything is hitched to everything else. That reminds me of, um, you know, what has been reported, you know, in these studies about psychedelic fungi, you know, people report almost overwhelmingly that they feel more connected to all life, that they feel, you know, more connected to nature, they feel more connected to other people. Um, and I'm curious if you have thoughts on um, the role of psilocybin in this, um, you know, major transformation that our planet is going through, um, as Joanna Macy would call it, the great turning. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, one of the thoughts uh, concerns the experiments at Johns Hopkins, uh, which you doubtless know about, and all the patients, uh, often those who are, uh, what shall we say, uh, death's door would be a nice way of putting it, uh, saying uh, they've had great spiritual experiences and are seeing God. And if I wanted to be um, cranky, I could say, oh, what this shows is that God has scrambled up serotonin, which is what the mushroom does in the brain, yes. So, uh, but I think for non-Johns Hopkins people, one of the great virtues uh, of psilocybin mushrooms is that they don't have the side effects and after effects of tobacco and uh, other drugs, opioids, etc. Ah, and they're not, at least not yet, controlled by some major corporation. Not yet. Not yet. Hopefully. Like, you know, we don't Fingers have... Fingers crossed. Right. Uh, like camel cigarettes. Uh, but uh, I, I see some hope... Um, uh, for that reason, I had mentioned Amanita muscaria, um, which I've written about, and I spent time in Chukotka in Siberia documenting its declining use with native people, Chukchi. They would eat this mushroom. Do you all know this mushroom, Amanita muscaria? Uh, it's, this, it's this <laughs> mushroom. You've seen it before, I'm sure. You've seen it before. 
it's, it's around here. And uh, I have indeed uh, dined on it in Santa Cruz. Ah. Um, uh, but uh, they, the Chukchi would um, take it and they would fly off to meet their ancestors. Uh, they would get in touch with them. One of the things I like about this, this mushroom, uh, as you might have guessed, uh, I am often more of a glass three quarters empty than half empty person. Uh, the, the effects on me of Amanita muscaria tend to be somewhat euphoric. Have you ever mm. had it? I have not. Okay. I, it gives me a sense of positivity and a feeling of euphoria uh, that sometimes life itself doesn't provide. And here's an example. I was in Santa Cruz, and there were all these bloody cranes. And I hate any kind of construction. I call it destruction. Uh, and all these cranes and so on, the work in Santa Cruz, sort of in the downtown area, that was pre-Amanita uh, Muscari, but that evening I had some. And I then looked at them aesthetically as a series of angles, almost artistic, uh, that were being kind of connected in uh, oh, an expressionist painting, you could say. Uh, and I, there is an incredible amount of folklore about this mushroom, probably more than the psilocybes that we're talking about um, that... Uh, are uh, now, I don't know quite what the status in California. In, well, in Den- psychedelics in- were just legalized in the town of Oakland. Okay. Decriminalized, thank you. Good way to be specific. Um, and I mean, and it's, it's a growing thing, you know, um, in California. I think there's other towns that are going to be next. Um, yeah, I don't know if... Um, I mentioned actually this this um, former lady friend of mine had taken uh, uh, my my favorite psilocybe. Can I mention it? It's psilocybe azurensis. Uh, there are a number of species, and they have uh, different effects. Think of them as being a bit like the alcohol content in a particular drink. And uh, she said, "I said, oh, what were the side effects?" Uh, and she said, "I went back to the beginning of time." I said, remarkable. <laughs> Did you encounter the Big Bang? And she said, I was the Big Bang. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, and, and, you know, you and I were talking, too, about different ways of consuming it, too. You know, when you have it in a tincture or a pill and you're given a dose versus, like, if you're involved in the cultivation of that mushroom or you go out and you find that azurescence or, um, you know, that, or even just eating the, the whole mushroom itself as a uh, different way of connecting with the medicine. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. I mean, I constantly think that the best way is to eat the thing itself rather than have a tincture, a capsule, capsule or something that a uh, laboratory has created for your benefit. Well, for their benefit, but you're the one who ends up buying it. Uh, so, uh, this would be true of even medicinals, I suppose. Uh, chaga, do you know what chaga is? No? Yes? Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you have it in this part of California. 
No. No, no birch trees. Uh, I guess no birch trees. Yeah, further I, up north. Yeah, up north. This grows, this uh, is now the celebrity medicinal mushroom, and it's not a mushroom at all. It's the sclerodium. It's uh, created by the mycelium, and it uh, harbors the betulinic acid that the tree is producing to try to ward off that mycelium, and it's sending it all into this blackish mass. C-H-A-G-A, uh, Google it, you'll get five billion hits. Um, and uh, so I would tell people that, um, they say, well, you think chaga is useful? And I said, well, I, I can't really tell you whether it will be useful for whatever ailment you have, but it'll be more useful if you will go out and collect it yourself than buy a bag of it at a health food store. Uh, and I might say, if the person is a friend, I'd say, and it will be especially useful if you combine, and it's, it, we're talking about a tea, chaga tea, uh, it'll be especially useful if you combine it with vodka. <laughs> and I would say it's the same for edible mushrooms as well. You know, you know, if you're going out and you're exploring, you have a connection with the ecosystem that these mushrooms come from, whether or not you're um, eating, you know, you're able to find mushrooms that day when you go out. If you understand that ecosystem and you understand how they grow and you have a connection with their home, um, I think that, you know, the, the effect of just eating a wild mushroom, you know, that, that whole experience is, is much deeper. This is very true, and plus the fact it's a different flavor because cultivated mushrooms tend to lose their ability. I mean, they no longer need to fight bacteria, so they're not producing certain chemicals that aid and abet their flavor the way the ones in the wild are. And this is, I mean, the, an analogy. Farmed venison with venison that your next-door neighbor that has shot the deer and you're eating that very evening. Um, so I would, I would say absolutely, um, uh, if given the choice between uh, a, um, we call it the metal mushroom, Agaricus campestris, uh, it is the button mushroom in supermarkets. And it was, it's cultured in such a way as to remain a button forever and ever because it was thought by initially Kennett Square in Pennsylvania, the color of the gills when the spores are mature is black, and that's not a very appetizing color for potential diners. Um, the, but it's changed. Now we have portobellos, which are black, but they are the opened up version, not of the supermarket button mushroom, but the cremini bush, button mushroom, C-R-I-M-I-N-I. -I -I. You, you know that one, don't you? Yeah. Would you um, grace us with a mushroom story? I will indeed. As I was telling you, I um, spent quite a bit of time in the north, especially the Canadian north and Greenland. And in the Queen Charlotte Islands uh, off the coast of British Columbia, I hung out with some Haida elders especially. Uh, and the word elder comes up a lot in my writing because it's usually the older people who tend to have the stories. And the younger people often don't speak the same language as their grandparents. 
Anyway, one of the stories that I collected concerns an individual named Fungus Man. Now, as you might or might not know, uh, Raven, capital R, created the world in a lot of Pacific Northwestern cultures. And personally, if I had to choose between a creator, uh, either Raven or Jehovah, I would pick Raven any day. <laughs> uh, anyway, he created the world. He created uh, rivers, uh, well, mountains, rivers. And uh, I said just a minute to one of the elders I talked to, uh, birds can't piss. Oh, he said, Raven could do anything. Well, he couldn't do anything. He created men, but he didn't know what to do next. And he went to Fungus Man. Now, Fungus Man is the personification of a particular bracket fungus, which you, do you have Larissa Fomey's officinalis office here? Not in California. Not in California. It's in Oregon. Uh, it's in the Pacific Northwest. It's a large bracket fungus, and it was idealized and idolized by Native people on the West Coast. Uh, and it was used, uh, it was put on the graves of shamans. Well, it also was personified as Fungus Man. Fungus Man was a very close friend of Raven. And so Raven went to a fungus man and said, you know, I've created this men, but I don't know what the hell to do next. Fungus man said, I will tell you. And there are a couple of uh, engravings. You can Google this, go on the internet. They got into a canoe with a fungus man in the bow and Raven in the stern, and Fungus Man took Raven out into the sea to a, an island where, and I'm not making this up, female genitalia lived, scampering over the rocks. And uh, Fungus Man told Raven, you know, just collect a whole batch of these. Raven did. He didn't. And, and Fungus Man then told Raven to do what? When they got back to where the men were, paste half of them right in the middle section of the men you've created. So Raven did that. And having done so, uh, the men looked very, very uh, affectionately, you could say, at the new creatures who had previously been men, but who were no longer men. And as one of the old elders said to me uh, after finishing this story, he said, you know, uh, if it hadn't been for Fungus Man, I wouldn't be telling you the story and you wouldn't be here listening to it. And if he had been here in this room tonight, this elder would have said, and you wouldn't be here listening to us. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. 